Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Rosamund McKitterick for a conversation about the forming of the papacy. Dr. McKitterick is Professor Emerita and Chair in Medieval History in the University of Cambridge's Faculty of History. She's also a Fellow of Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. She's the author of numerous publications, including a couple books as examples, Rome and the Invention of the Papacy, which was published by Cambridge University Press. And she's also a co-author in the forthcoming book, Codex Epistolaris Carolinus, Letters from the Popes to the Frankish Rulers, 739 to 791. That book is expected to come out May of this year, so 2021 and will be published by Liverpool University Press. Welcome to the call, Rosamond. Thank you, Andrew. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, what is the papacy and why was it originally formed? The first thing to say is that it wasn't formed as the papacy. Mm -hmm. What one has to remember is the account of the apostles after the death of Christ meeting and the whole events of Pentecost when Christ appears to them and encourages them to go out into the world and teach and tell everybody about him and from then you get essentially a diaspora of the apostles in all directions some to India some to Africa and Peter ends up in Rome and indeed Paul as well ends in Rome now Peter was the first bishop of Rome, according to later versions of his story. We don't have that in the book of Acts because there Peter is in prison and then escapes and that's it, that's all we hear about him. But we do have the tradition that he was executed in Rome and the as first bishop he is then the founder of what we now call the papacy. But in the very early years, the consistent reference to them is bishop or bishop of Rome or pontiff is sometimes a word that's also used. Hmm. And why was he, uh, so Peter, uh, why was he murdered? Peter was a Christian and the then reigning emperor was a pagan. And it was part of the general persecution of Christians in the first century AD. There were other persecutions in the third century as well, until Constantine, the Roman emperor, was converted to Christianity and made Christianity a legal religion for the first time. It was then another 80 years before Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, Peter and his work weren't necessarily particularly subversive, but because of the particular loyalties of the Christians and their refusal to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods, they then came under the suspicion and often retribution of civic authorities and secular authorities. So there were a lot of Christian martyrs in the early years, and Peter was known as one of them. But what one should also remember is that there is a very famous phrase in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, where Christ actually says to Peter, thou art Peter, and it's a pun on the word Petrus, you are the rock, and on this rock I, I will build my church. 
So he's regarded in many ways as supported from gospel texts as the founder of the Christian church as an organization. Do you have any sense of approximately how many people who were supporters of Christianity would have arrived at Rome around the time of the formation of the papacy? Well, if we call it the establishment of a bishop or a Christian community in Rome, it's very difficult to tell. We know that there is a Jewish community in Rome, and of course, a lot of Jews are converts to Christianity. Peter himself was a Jew, so it was Christ for that matter. The actual size of the community is impossible to estimate, Mm -hmm. but the references to them and references to other groups of Christians in Rome in the first and early second century suggest that it was quite large. Mm. One other factor is that after the conquest of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70-71 AD, there's a major diaspora of Jews right across the Mediterranean, different communities forming on the Mediterranean Sea littoral right across so that the size of the community is certainly substantial enough for St. Paul to address his letter to the Romans, which survives in the New Testament, as a sizable enough community to call it Epistle to the Romans. Peter and Paul arrive in Rome approximately when was that, did you say? We don't know exactly when. Um, some people even say Peter never was there, but that's another okay. uh, side issue. Yeah, yeah. But Peter is 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 probably killed around AD sixty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it might be sixty seven, and the account of how long he was there varies. But some of the accounts suggest he was there for about twenty five years. Okay, and what do you believe? were their goals initially uh, in arriving in Rome? They were simply going to a community of non-Christians and their goal was to convert into Christianity, to belief in what Christ taught and his teaching. So there wasn't any huge institutional ambition. It Mm -hmm. was simply to offer a ministry to a group of individuals and to encourage people to join this particular community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very grassroots at the start, like a lot of things. Absolutely. It's it's a matter of groups of people of a particular faith and a particular set of beliefs. So at what point, based on your research, would you then say that there's now a an organization uh even possibly at that point calling it a a papacy when when does that occur or perhaps they occurred different times well i think it it's a matter of gradually coalescing one thing i think that needs to be clear from the start is we're working always backwards from particular records or attempts to construct and represent the past from honest attempts to look at the records people have, lists lists of burial places of saints and the like. Our first major narrative about the popes is actually from the 6th century. So it's, it's 500 years mm-hmm. after the time we've just been talking about. Mm-hmm. And they quite clearly are basing their account on records surviving from the 3rd and 4th century. 
but it's coloured by, of course, all the things that they want to get across in the 6th century. So certainly by the 6th century, you have an institution which you could call the papacy, and I think probably much, much sooner than that you could, perhaps even as early as the 4th. Before that, what appears to be, even from the 6th century texts and from other indications we have from papal letters, from lists, from references to the popes, are a number of different Christian communities in Rome, some of whom may not necessarily be under this particular bishop who becomes the dominant one. But in the end, they all do come under him. And the key moment appears to be, though it's represented as, might be a better way of putting it, is the conversion of the Emperor Constantine to Christianity in the early years of the fourth century. And the papal narrative actually insists that the conversion process was done by the then Pope Sylvester I. So it's a very particular relationship that's formed between Constantine and the Bishop of Rome. And Constantine is the one who provides Sylvester with a palace area. He founds the Lateran Church. He endows it with a great deal of money and estates. So there you've got the means whereby you can start building in a very real way with a considerable amount of money, estates, you start increasing your clergy and the like. Whereas before that, it's probably really rather an impoverished community. Socially, it's not particularly elevated, though there are some indications that the social status of Christians in the later third century is getting higher within the city. The only other indication we've got of communities in Rome is actually from the catacombs, where there are many, many burials of different groups, pagan, Jewish, Christian, and there you get a sense of, uh, of an increasingly large community which was paying attention also to the numbers of martyrs and saints that were being created. But again, it's later records, 4th, 5th and 6th century accounts of the people who were killed by the secular authorities for their faith and then get honoured as saints later. Constantine's conversion to Christianity seems like a pivotal moment in the history of um, Catholicism uh, and Christianity. What do you believe that was a when lo when looking back? Do you believe that was predictable? Like, was there a lot of momentum happening at that time with uh, people converting uh, to Christianity, or do you think that it was somewhat um, by random chance or happenstance that this emperor decided to embrace this religion? I don't think it's chance um, or sudden. There is, it's. One of the great historical debates was why did Constantine convert? Was he really a convinced Christian? What was in it for him? That's one, one angle that some of the historians have taken in discussing what is going on. If you look at the way in which Christianity has spread before Constantine, if we, we're thinking of him, it's 310 into the 320s and 30s. That's, that's his big period. Before that, we have communities of Christians who are established right around the Mediterranean, well into what we would now call France, into Asia Minor, the Middle East, even down as far as India. This is also testified by the number of Christian writers. And even before 
Constantine's conversion, we have records of Christian communities and bishops who meet in councils and synods to discuss weighty ecclesiastical problems. So from the, certainly from the late third century, there is a considerable indication that of size of communities, buildings developing, special places which are designated as churches. And Roman religion tended to be fairly tolerant, in fact, and it was only when Christians or a particular emperor decided to be very um, antagonistic towards Christians that you get periods of persecution. Constantine's reign was preceded by such an emperor, the Emperor Diocletian, and there were persecutions during his reign. But the way Constantine came to power was not at the time because he wanted to convert the whole of the Roman Empire to Christianity, but the way the Christians represented his conversion was to portray one of his major battles, which was the really significant victory where he won Rome, as something that he had done specifically because he had put his faith in the Christian God. So it's it's a mixture of things. My own feeling is that he was, he had listened to discussions about Christian faith and had genuinely accepted it. And then he decided to make it legal so that Christians would no longer be persecuted. So with hindsight, you can see that as a pivotal moment. But it took a very, very long time for things to get established. And even in the 360s, you have an emperor for a brief time who was a pagan again. That's the Emperor Julian. Before Christianity then is promoted and encouraged again by Roman emperors and becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 380s. But you still have pagan groups some pagan schools weren't closed until the 6th century. So it's a long and gradual process. Is there, is there a, a moment in history, like a specific date or like a, an accompanying promulgation that has the papacy, uh, and I'll also include, if, if uh, distinct, uh, the Catholic Church being formed? I would say that it's actually the account in the Gospels of the death of Christ and the resurrection. That's it. That's when the community of Christians, as followers of Christ, decided that they were a very distinct community. How it then develops institutionally mm -hmm. depends on where it's established and mm -hmm. the different developments. And even when you get Catholic Church in Rome, the church we now call the Catholic Church, there are other very, very important communities, especially in late antiquity, in Antioch, in Alexandria, in Jerusalem, and also subsequently in Constantinople, which regard themselves as very, very major communities. And then when you think of the way Christianity was introduced to some regions, such as Coptic Egypt and Ethiopia, or into Armenia. These are very, very early Christian communities. So that the Catholics are the people we would define simply because of the way they understand the Trinity is a major Orthodox group. And a lot of other people are similarly Catholic with perhaps a small c. And the whole alignment to Rome is something that develops very gradually, so let's say between the 6th and the 8th century, where it's much, much clearer that alignment and recognition of Rome's primacy becomes a very important issue. Is the term 
papacy is that uh, that neologism is that something that was used at the time obviously in Latin or is that something that historians or other scholars have associated to that uh, type of position later on it's it's quite an old word I mean you find bishops roaming called papa quite early mm-hmm. uh, even as early as the fourth century it's it's one designations the actual word papacy in English I've, I've not looked up but it's probably goes back to at least the Reformation the most of the time it's pontificar the Liber Pontificalis, the Book of Pontiffs, that's more common, or the Bishops of Rome, or the Pontiffs of Rome, that's that's much a much more common designation. Okay. Who was the first Pope? St. Peter. <laughs> he's the first Bishop of Rome, so he's regarded as the first Pope. Okay. And do we have information about why he was um, regarded as the as the as the as a bishop back then so so what about was it just because he happened to be the one in Rome and then later on the Catholic Church forms there is that why then we look at um, Peter as the uh, first bishop of the Catholic Church Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is this clause in the Gospel of Matthew where Christ actually calls Peter the founder of his church. And the Gospel of Matthew is is one of the texts that's often cited when people are talking about the authority on which Peter's um, responsibility for the church is, is based. For instance, in the Liber Pontificalis from the 6th century, that's written in the 6th century, it's reconstructing the whole of the history. And it says of Clement, who is around 95 AD, that it says, on St. Peter's instruction, he undertook the pontificate for governing the church, as the cathedra had been handed down and entrusted to Peter by the Lord Jesus Christ. You will find in the letter written to James how the church was entrusted to him by Peter. And then in the account of Peter himself, we have right at the beginning uh, a letter which says, I want to write the the person saying, I'm writing the history enacted of the Sea of Rome from the reign of the Apostle St. Peter. And then in the life of Peter, the account that's given, and we have various indications that that particular element of it is actually really much, much older than the 6th century. We've got a late 4th century version, which includes a lot of this information. This is what it calls him. He says, St. Peter, the apostle and prince of apostles, and Antiochene, the son of John, from the village of Bethesda in the province of Galilee, the brother of Andrew, first occupied the Episcopal Cathedra at Antioch for seven years. Peter went to Rome when Nero was Caesar, and there he occupied the Episcopal Cathedral 25 years, two months, and three days. And then it explains that he wrote two epistles called Catholic and Mark's Gospel because Mark was his hearer. Later, he was the complete source of the four Gospels. Peter confirmed them by his testimony. 
Then Peter ordained two bishops, Linus and Platus, to be present in Rome to provide the entire sacerdotal ministry for the people and for visitors, while Peter himself was free to pray and preach to teach the people. Now, the other factory, of course, is Rome is the center of the Roman Empire. So if you want mm. to see everybody spread the word, it's a very, very important place to be. You don't go off to some outlying village way off in the center of a country which nobody comes to. Rome is where the emperor is, it's where the power is based, it's a good place to be if you want to spread the word about the faith, and that's what he does. When do you consider the Catholic Church, approximately, when do you consider the Catholic Church an established organization has very clear contours at this point as an institution? I would put it into the late third and the fourth century. The reason for that is simply you get documentation where you get clear indications of structure. One of the most important councils of the Christian church is in Nicaea in 325, presided over by the Emperor Constantine. And those acts give you an indication of the structures of the churches that are already very well in place, bishops, priests, churches that they look after, responsibilities, sermons, ecclesiastical behavior, and actual definition of the doctrines. Now, you quite clearly in that document have an indication that it existed before that because we do have some earlier councils before 325 there's one for instance at the council of Arles in 310 and that is attended by bishops from all over the mediterranean including two from britain they too and we also have councils from northern africa so i would guess let's say by the middle of the third century you've got a very very well organized communities in a great many cities right across the area we would call southern France, North Africa, the Mediterranean, and the Middle East. Can you speak a little bit about the governance structure then that was established in those early years? And there are different positions within the, the church, whether at that time were established later on, like Pope, Archbishops, Bishops, Saints, um, there's more obviously. Can, can you explain some of the, the uh, prominent positions and what their purposes are? Right. Well, in any ecclesiastical organization, it's it's divided into what we would call ecclesiastical provinces, which are headed by the archbishop. And another word for him sometimes is metropolitan. And within that big province, you can have a number of bishoprics. So they're cities, also presided over by a bishop. But the archbishop will be head of one of the cities and he will be the superior of all the others. In each bishopric, you have a cathedral church in the city which has clergy looking after it. And you also have a system of smaller churches out into the rural areas, which we now would call parishes. Often the word for parish is often the same as diocese. And then within each Cathedral church, you've probably got people like deacons, and in each parish church, you will sometimes have others who are helping. And from the 
the third and fourth centuries, you're beginning to get references to a number of clerical grades or ecclesiastical grades within the hierarchy with ascending matters of, of responsibility. So the acolytes, exorcists, mm. lectors, that's readers, um, ossiari, the people, the gate, the, the, the doorkeepers. Then you get subdeacons, deacons and priests and then bishops. Now, essentially, the bishops and the priests are the ones who administer the mass, and deacons and people lower them perform smaller liturgical functions within the church or aspects of the ministry. Now, you also, is that enough or to give you an idea of the way it works? Because it's very similar to now, it's not changed a lot. And what happens is that the bishop or will occasionally, or the archbishop will call a synod or a council, which will be a provincial checking up that everybody knows what they're doing and they will bring matters for discussion, problems that they've got. You know, sometimes they're really basic problems. We have one from one council which says, are priests allowed to go to pubs? Can they have a drink? Um, another one says, what do we do when a man is married to a woman and she dies? Can he marry her sister? This kind of thing is discussed, but they also talk about much more doctrinal matters, about matters of the faith. They talk about how people can help with welfare. They're looking after the poor. And there's an enormous amount of organization which actually is devoted to looking after the poor and welfare. And then the other major aspect of church activity is the liturgy, the performance daily of the commemorative services which reenact elements of the Last Supper in the Mass and then other offices during the day which essentially are opportunities for prayer. Okay. And did you did you reference earlier the first pope um, using that terminology was around the sixth century? Well, I think you could find the word papa um, actually as early as the fourth. I, I'm I was going to say that I would label a particular one who was called that, but I think I would need to check that's completely. Okay. But I think it was Damasus, but I'm not sorry. That that's okay. Um, <laughs> The, the other thing you mentioned in your question, though, was saints. Mm-hmm. Saints can be anybody. Men, women, children, bishops, any any aspect of the ecclesiastical hierarchy, monks, lots and lots of people, after they died or even before they died, were regarded as saints. One of the qualifications of a particular saint in the very early years was dying for your faith as martyrs, but you could also achieve sainthood by good works. So the the number of saints is legion. It's very, very great in the early church. And if you go to Rome in particular, you find that many, many individuals are called saints. Churches are founded for them. And if you go into some churches, you will actually find inscriptions where early popes, for instance, Pope Paul I in the 8th century or Pope Pascal the I in the 9th century, brought many, many bodies of individuals from the catacombs into the center of the city, and they were called saints. They may not have been in any way in terms of their way they conducted their life, but they are regarded as part of the holiness of the city. What the 
bishops of Rome undoubtedly do is enhance the holiness of the city. They make it into a sacred city. It's Rome, the center of the empire. It's Rome, the center of the Christian church. Saints didn't need to necessarily be clergy in their life? Oh, no, not at all. Anybody. Okay. Just depended how they conducted their life and what they did to bring attention to the importance and strength of their faith. Once the organization is more established as an institution, um, perhaps around the fourth century, as I think you mentioned, can you explain um, in more basic terms, because I'm sure there's lots of nuances to this, how a pope is chosen? Right. Again, lots of dispute. Essentially, a pope will be chosen as any other bishop would be chosen he's elected by the people of the city that's that's essentially the process Mm -hmm. the actual nomination can be by a group of supporters usually clergy but not always and they will say this is our candidate if there are no disputes about it all will be well and that person will then be elected and he becomes the new pope but sometimes there were disputes and we have factions and sometimes quite dramatic scenes of disputes and what will happen when these two rivals and their different factions will fight it out for them. The people actually chosen to be Pope can sometimes be clergy actually within the city. Often they're people who've come from elsewhere and are now in the city of Rome, so they might be a priest of a local church, very, very occasionally, they might even be a monk. But what we do have is a sense of different nationalities of the people that they, they may have started out somewhere else, but for one reason or other ended up in Rome and then become suitable candidates for the papacy. And the way in which they're chosen is actually simply the comments that we get are how worthy they were to be chosen, whether they were suitably learned or suitable as possible leaders and the like. So the the process of election, once somebody has been nominated, they have to be um, acclaimed. And then after that, there is a process of consecration. What is the purpose of the office of the papacy and has that purpose, in your opinion, changed or evolved over time? The primary purpose of the Pope is actually to be bishop in the city of Rome. Mm. But according to the way in which the church was organized, he was always he was also effectively the archbishop of a very, very large area known as the suburbicarian regions, which was essentially central and southern Italy, Sardinia, Corsica and Sicily. Now, the, that meant that he was really the, the metropolitan. So that was his primary ecclesiastical jurisdiction, the area he would govern as the bishop. Okay. But what happens in the course of the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries is the Pope adds the spiritual jurisdiction of the whole of the Christian church 
to that so that he is writing letters, people write letters to him asking for guidance. There is a certain amount of division between the East and the West. It's much more the West that turns to the Pope for leadership. But he effectively also becomes the leader of the Christian Church in the West. And in that position, he's the guardian of orthodoxy. He's the person that people will appeal to in cases of ecclesiastical dispute. They will also turn to him for guidance on particular matters. So what begins to happen is that people in the different churches in Britain and later England and in Ireland, in what we would now call France, Germany, Spain, North Africa, other parts of Italy, write to the Pope and ask him for guidance on particular matters. He sends back a specific response to the specific request, but that in time becomes generalized and becomes regarded as a papal decretal and put into canon law collections. So you begin to get a body of material that's regarded as part of the legislation of the church, which originated from popes answering questions. In your research, uh, is there any evidence that the papacy was inspired or modeled off of a another type of organization as inspiration well to some degree they're modeling themselves on the roman emperors yes but we partly get that impression because the liber pontificalis the book i mentioned the history that's written in the sixth century deliberately models itself on the history of emperors so they're creating with a text a kind of model for emulation in the text but they are essentially the rulers within the city they become both the secular and the spiritual ecclesiastical organizers of the whole city and they have staff under them okay so a, a closing question um which is a good segue for for what you said there um what is the again you know easy question probably more complex answer what was to be the official relationship between a, a ruler in rome and the pope was there uh to be uh an official relationship or was it always just based on the ruler of the time well it does depend when you're talking about certainly mm -hmm. between the fifth century and at least the 10th if not very much later, the ruler of Rome is the Pope. There are secular rulers, but they're not rulers of Rome. They have a relationship with Rome, and there's big debates about precisely what that relationship was. For instance, Charlemagne was crowned emperor and governor of the Romans in 800 by the Pope, but he wasn't the ruler of Rome. Then later, Otto was made the Holy Roman Emperor, but that's his empire. He has a very careful relationship with the popes, but again, it's, it's very different. For a while, you do get secular rulers who claim that they are ruling Rome, but the, the pope is essentially in a very, very particular and distinctive position within the city. And it will always depend on exactly what time you're talking about and which particular ruler you're talking about. This, Sorry, which particular secular ruler who has an interest in or is actually ruler of Italy or part of Italy at the time. 
Yeah, understood. This has been a very good conversation and you've laid a nice panoramic of this topic on the formation of the papacy. Thanks for coming on the call, Rosamond. Thank you. Been a pleasure to talk to you. So again, everybody, if uh, you'd like to pick up any of Dr. McKitterick's uh, books, I will drop links to the couple that I mentioned uh, at the start of the call in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's website. Again, they were Rome and the Invention of the Papacy. That was Cambridge University Press and Codex Epistolaris uh, Carolinus, Letters from the Popes to the Frankish Rulers, 739 to 791. That was Liverpool Liverpool University Press. That latter one is forthcoming. And I'll probably update the, um, the website when it's available for purchase. Uh, Rosamond and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you celebrate Easter, I wish you a happy Easter weekend. Bye for now.